You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So this morning we talk about a life of lasting impact. How do you, how do you live that? How do you finish well? What does a life of a godly legacy really, really look like? Well, my, my first experience, my first exposure to really this reality was long ago when I was a middle school pastor at my last church. Um, I was coming to a point where it was clear that it was time for me to transition to a new role. And at the time, we had a, a community care pastor, a pastoral care pastor by the name of Walter Dingfield, and he had been in vocational ministry literally for 50 years. And he was getting ready to, to step out of that role. And so they decided to have me step into that role and to mentor with him for a year before that transition actually happened. And honestly, it was one of the richest, most significant years of my life because I, I shared an office with this man. And literally, wherever he went, I went with him. And one of his principal duties as, uh, as our pastoral care pastor was to go visit people in the hospital, either before surgery or after surgery as they were recovering. And in all fairness, we live in a little bit different day and age than back then. When you go into the hospital, they kick you out just as soon as they can. But back then, you went into the hospital and you stayed generally longer than we do these days. And I remember one of the first hospital visitations I went with this man to he was telling me some very practical specifics, like, okay, so when we get there, um, you don't want to sit on the bed because, you, you know, you never know if that's going to, you know, hurt their injury or make them uncomfortable. So don't sit on the bed. Don't talk too much. You know, think through, if you were in their condition, what would you want to hear? What would comfort? What would encourage? And, and less is always more. So, you know, better to stay shorter than to overstay and be there too long. And by the way, usually when you visit people, depending on where they're at in their recovery, they're usually heavily medicated or on all these medicines. And, and so sometimes they're just going to say things that they don't necessarily intend to say. And so, you know, we extend grace during those times and, you know, just, just don't worry about that. But, I, you know, I'm getting kind of anxious as we're getting ready to go. On. What am I stepping into and what am I doing? And so, we go up to this, this hospital room, and we walk in, and we'll call the lady Doris, and Doris is there, and, and she's recovering from this surgery, and she's at the end of her life, in all, in all fairness. And so we walk in, and she Im immediately recognizes Walter. She doesn't knew, know who I am, but she recognizes Pastor Walter, and they begin to talk. And we talk for a bit, and he gets ready to pray for her, and she stops and looks at him and says, Walter, you know what? You remind me of my third husband. You look just like him. And he said, Doris, you've only had two husbands. And then she looked right at him and said, I know. <laughs> and then Pastor Walter says, okay, Pastor Jay, why don't you close us in prayer? <laughs> what do you pray in that situation, Right. And that was my baptism into pastoral care from there. So it was very, very, very interesting. But I loved that man. He was a godly man. And he was a man who finished well. He went home to be with the Lord some years ago. 
I still stayed in contact with him every so often. I would journey out to the west side where I had come from and where he was and, and spend time with him, take him out to coffee or lunch just to glean from him, just to learn from him. But I so respected him, and he was such a great example of a man who was humble, who loved people, who was generous, who gave, who served, who was gracious, and who left a godly legacy. You know someone like that? Someone who has lived or is living a life of impact? Man, I do. I'm looking at many of them right here. I mean, I could name names, and unfortunately, I would leave someone out, so I'm not going to name names. There are a number of you who fit that bill. A number of you. And as we come to really a summary conclusion of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is someone who left a lasting impact. He lived a godly and left a godly legacy. And so often in our culture and in our world of brokenness and sinfulness, it's far easier to think of those who don't, right? It's far easier to think of and identify those who don't finish well, who don't leave a godly legacy. In fact, I I read something in a book recently that said that roughly 30% of the godly men and women in the Bible finished well and and left a godly legacy. The rest, you know, just oftentimes train wrecked their lives. So thinking about this positively, what does a life of lasting impact look like? Well, Nehemiah models some of that to us. So even if you're not in a place of your life where you're thinking about finishing well, no one who finishes well doesn't live a life of lasting impact first. If you want to finish well, it takes intentionality. So whether you're thinking about how you'll finish, whether you're thinking about living a life of godly legacy, maybe you're just thinking about how do I just rebuild my life with what's going on right now? This is a message, and these are words from God's word for me and for you. And right out of the gate, we want to say, you know, this isn't a simple one, two, three step thing where, okay, just do these things and this leaves a godly legacy. But there are definitely some things for us to learn from together here. So once again, I want to ask God to open his word to us. And then we're going to do a summary look at the book of Nehemiah as we close out this series. And Lord, this series has been so meaningful to me. I have learned so much and been inspired and encouraged and challenged. And together, Collectively, we pray that as your church, as a church family, that you will speak into each of our lives, that as only you can, you'll make your word come alive to us, help us to understand it, apply it, and live it, and to live lives of impact for you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to the beginning of Nehemiah and see... And reset some things with where we started in this amazing series from this amazing book. So, Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And just real quickly as a reminder... History tells us that in 586 B.C., the second world superpower, the Babylonians, swept down into that part of of Judea and Jerusalem, and they exiled, conquered and exiled a majority of the people. And so they were being assimilated into the Babylonian culture, 
And yet, now we begin to hear that there's a movement of God to, to bring the people back to the land and to rebuild the city and eventually the wall. And so this is what they said to him. They said to Nehemiah, those who survived the exile and who were back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he hears this news about Jerusalem and how does he respond? He mourns and fasts some very essential practices for building intimacy with the Lord, but he prays as well. In fact, as you think with me globally through this series, what we've seen in these last several weeks, what is Nehemiah always doing? He's always praying. Dude is always praying. In every circumstance, in every situation, look at this. This is just a quick summary. I paged through my Bible real quickly and, and just was looking at how many times, how many places does Nehemiah pray? He prays here a, a prayer of confession and forgiveness, and then he prays that God will give him success, and he goes before the king and literally puts his life on the line. And in the moment, as he's putting himself out there on behalf of his people, asking for permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall, he prays for help help with the king. And then the insults, the ridicule, the mocking that came from his enemies. He prays in the heart of that. He prays for God's favor and blessing. He prays that God would strengthen his hands. He then prays this incredible, beautiful prayer, which by the way, in chapter nine is the longest recorded prayer we have in all of scripture, Old Testament to new. And it's beautiful prayer about God's faithfulness to them through their history and, and what he's done for them. And in Nehemiah 13, he prays for God to remember what he has done. In fact, he prays that multiple times. And then he prays for God to remember what his enemies have done. But the reality is, he's always praying. Is that true of you? You know, Scripture says we are to pray without ceasing. That's not talking about volume of words. That's talking about intimacy with God and seeking him in the rhythms of our life every day. Good or bad, difficult or easy. We pray, we talk to him, and, and we listen to him. And that is a common denominator of those who want to live a godly life and leave a godly legacy, is, is prayer. Ephesians 6.18 tells us in the New Testament to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of, of prayers. It's about this intimacy with, with God. So again, I will ask you, are you a person of prayer? Do you listen to the Lord? Do you talk to the Lord through the rhythms of your day and really the rhythms of your life? And interestingly enough, it's when he's praying that, assumably, he gets this vision to rebuild the wall because where in the book of Nehemiah does it tell us that God explicitly told him to rebuild the wall? Where is that? What verse is that? It's not there. So how did he know to build the wall? I think in part it came through his intimacy of prayer and recognizing and realizing that, that God was at work. But also in his prayer, we get another hint. 
He says this, that remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And that warning, by the way, appears over and over and over again in the Old Testament. I just finished reading Deuteronomy and multiple times in there, God says, if you disobey me, if you don't follow me, if you continue to persist in that, then this is what's going to happen. You're going to be exiled, conquered and exiled. But if you return to me, though, it goes on to say, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the far this horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah knows that God keeps his promises, and so it gives purpose to his life. Nehemiah believed and acted on the promises of God because he trusted and obeyed God. Is that true for you? Do you believe God keeps his promises? Do you live your life accordingly? Do I? Because sometimes it's easy for us to look at this as 66 books, Old Testament and New Testament put together, of kind of a history book of what God did. But this isn't just a history book. This is God revealing himself to us. God still speaks to us through his word. And as we're thinking about the Bible, as we're thinking about the Word of God, the promises of God, if you had to summarize the Bible in one word, what would that word be? How about redemption? I mean, isn't that the arc of the Bible? Don't all 66 books point to this reality of our need for redemption? We go back to Genesis, the book of beginnings. And God has created the world and everything is good. He's created it shalom, the way he always intended it to be. Ordered, relational, connected to him and him to his his creation. And yet we also read though in the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve choose to disobey God. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because they disobey him, sin and death and disease, destruction enters the world, and yet there's this promise embedded in there. And this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God is rightfully pronouncing judgment on their sin, there's a promise of redemption. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's pronouncing judgment on Satan, the adversary. And it gets singular here when it's been plural. And it says that someone will crush someone's head and someone will strike his heel. Well, this is talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that someday at the heart of the divine rescue mission, God would send his son who would live a spirit-filled life, show us what life was always meant to be like, but then he would give himself, sacrifice himself on a cross. He would be crucified. He'd be buried. And three days later, he would rise from the dead in order to redeem you and me to offer life and salvation for all who would believe. Jesus himself said, as the Messiah, in Luke 19, chapter 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Whether you and I know it or not, if you don't know the one true God through knowing Jesus Christ, his Son, you're lost. And you may be living your life with purpose, but not his purpose for you. 
And this rescue language appears in places like Colossians 1, 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves through whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth, if you say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He gives us purpose. Your purpose and mine is to know him and, and to love him. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're, you're saved from an empty life, a life of purposelessness, a life of sin and selfishness and, and brokenness. But once you're saved by the divine rescue mission, you join the divine rescue mission. Why did Nehemiah build that wall? Because it was broken and it needed to be rebuilt. Because he believed the promises of God. And you look at the arc of his life as we have through this series, and he not only built the wall, he confronted injustice, he stood against his enemies and the enemies of God, he helped the poor, he served others, he lived a generous life. You see, this purpose we have as Jesus followers, as individuals, and as his church is wherever we see brokenness around us and we can restore shalom, we can redeem it, we can change it, we can repair it, we can restore it in the name of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we do. And that's what Nehemiah did. Where there was brokenness and he could do something about it, he did. And how long, by the way, did it take him to build this wall, this wall that had laid broken and destroyed in so many places for over 100 years? Do you remember how long it took him to build it? Yeah, 52 days, actually. 52 days. But he had help. He didn't do it alone. Because this isn't just about you and me. The divine rescue mission is about us. This is about community. You want to live a life, life of lasting impact, then be part of the community. Here's a question for you that I ran across. What is more likely to end your life prematurely? A, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. B, having six drinks of alcohol a day. Or C, loneliness. Do you know what the answer is? Verified in study after study after study? Go look it up yourselves. Go Google search it, the American Medical Association. Do you know what it is? Loneliness. 36% of Americans say they are experiencing severe or significant loneliness. So this isn't just the occasional loneliness that you and I might feel in different seasons of our life. This is saying over a third of our country feels significant, severe loneliness. How does that work? Aren't we more connected than we've ever been before because of social? And yet equally troubling with that statistic is we have some generations coming up behind many of us, our millennials, our Zoomers, who significantly identify with this. Many of them say, more than any previous generations, that they are lonely and disconnected from community. 
Now, the reality is you can find community in a lot of different places. You can find it in a gym or, um, you know, at a bar or, you know, other places that we might call third places besides your home and your work. But there's something special about this community, about the community of God and the people of God. And one of the dynamics that we get to enjoy together is we, we discover God together. And we also make him visible together. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but any of you here last Sunday? Was that fun or what? Do you know what we did last Sunday? We took three services and compressed them into two. We have three worship services, by the way. Two in English here in the mornings, and then one in the afternoon in Spanish. And we combined our services, which we haven't been able to do in a really long time. And yeah, in fairness, it's a little awkward trying to sing worship in another language that you don't know. But it was special. It was significant. It was sacred. Was it not a lot of fun? It was absolutely a lot of fun. And you know what we were doing when we were doing that together? Not just worshiping, but making God visible. According to Ephesians chapter 3 in the New Testament... One of the mysteries of God is that Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, become together in believing God, in following God through knowing and loving Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they are now a people. So you have all these people from different languages, different cultures, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic status, who are a community together. People who would never be together under normal circumstances now love each other, and have community and unity together. We were making God visible according to Ephesians chapter 3 last week. And I think that's pretty cool. And the dynamic of this community that you won't find in another community is we discover God together. We live out together what it means to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. So are you part of this community? And some of you might rightfully say, Duh, I'm here. Yes, I'm part of this community. And, and those of you watching, listening online, yes, I'm part of this community. But are you really? Because you see, if you're just coming and spectating and then leaving, then you're not. If you're not giving of your relationships, of your time, and yes, of your resources, your, your money, if you're not somehow serving and, 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 and in relationships somehow, then actually you're not part of this community and you're missing out. Because the reality is we, we need each other, right? Because life can be profoundly difficult and incredibly hard. So about a week and a half ago, I had an opportunity to go on a snowshoeing trip. My, my brother-in-law, who's always doing these amazing things, invited me some months ago to go on this snowshoeing trip with him and his friend. And that's his friend Alan there to the right. And that's my brother-in-law Steve to the left. And just love hanging out, being with those guys. So this is us when we're getting ready to start on this snowshoeing trip. And it wasn't just a snowshoeing trip. We were going to snowshoe up to a fire lookout at Clear Lake up on Mount Hood, and stay in it. You ever stayed in a fire tower? Yeah, me neither. 
But evidently, it's, it's a thing. It's something you can do. You, you know, go on the park system, and just like you reserve a yurt at a campground or something like that, you can reserve fire lookouts. And they go really quickly, and it's hard to get into them. So I said, yeah, I'll go with you for a couple days and go up to this fire lookout. And that's what it looked like when we got there. It's 40 feet in the air. When the wind blows, so does it. You can feel it <laughs> moving, right? And amazing, amazing experience. So that's a picture of Mount Hood the morning we woke up, our first morning there. It was just unbelievably beautiful. This is Mount Hood at night. Off to the left are the lights of Ski Bull. In the center are the lights of Timberline. And off to the right are the lights of Meadows for all the night skiers. I mean, it was just crystal clear. The pictures just don't even do it justice. And this is the second day we were out messing around with our snowshoes and going into some deeper snow. But it was so much fun when we got there. But it was not fun getting there. So what they told me going into this was, okay, so this is pretty remote. So there's no water. Obviously, there's no food. So you're going to have to pack and bring what you need. And it's cold there, and it was. There's a little um, wood stove that you keep going all the time, but it's single-pane windows. It's uninsulated. It's constantly cold, despite the, despite the wood stove. And the first night we got there, there were snow flurries coming in, and, I mean, it was, it was cold. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, I've never been on one of these before, so what size pack do I need? Well, I'm thinking bigger is better. So I talk to my, my brother-in-law, Steve, and say, Steve, can I borrow a pack? And he says, oh, yeah, I've got a 96-liter, which is it's a big pack. It's almost as tall as I am. And, you know, you can strap that on your back. And what do I bring? Well, you just pack light. You know, you're carrying what, what you need, so make sure there's a line between what you need and what you want. And so I thought, okay, so I'm going to need water. So I overpacked water and packed the food. And, you know, I thought, guys, it's probably going to be cold up there. So I packed all these clothes. And, of course, I needed a sleeping bag. So I had a backpack sleeping bag I borrowed from my, my son and daughter-in-law and some other camping equipment. And, and then I thought, well, you know, it's going to be cold up there. So I threw a hot tub in because I thought, you know, it'd be nice to... <laughs> be nice to sit in the hot tub. And if I take a hot tub, I got to have a shower. So I threw a shower in there and, you know, no, obviously not. But here's the deal. If you have a 96 liter backpack, you're probably going to fill it, right? And just because you can doesn't mean you should. Well, evidently that doesn't apply to backpacking. So I filled this completely full 500 pound backpack. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. I don't know how heavy it was, but it was heavy. And so they told me going into this, you're going to be carrying a heavy backpack. And so, you know, it's three and a half miles in, and there's some hills. The whole thing is a hill. And um, we're going to be in deep snow. Um, it will be um, groomed, most of what we're going to be walking on, because, you know, there's snowmobiles that run through there and what have you. And hey, if your backpack gets too heavy, you know, you can slip the snowmobile, a $20, $20 bill, and they'll probably take it up to the tower for you. And I'm, you know, I'm insulted. Seriously? I mean, come on. 3.5 miles, I run that five days a week. More than that, actually. So this, this is nothing. So, you know, I load up my backpack with the hot tub and the shower and everything else in it. And, you know, we're getting ready to go. And I showed you those pictures there. And we start out. And the first part, like the first half mile, is downhill. And I'm thinking, don't waste my time. And so we get to the turnoff where it says two miles, Clear Lake Tower. And the road is like this. And the hill is like this. And again, we're walking in snowshoes in the snow with backpacks on. And so we start up this hill. And I wanted to stop. 
like 20 steps in and there was two miles to go. And it gets steeper at the end. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be paying the dumb tax on this heavy backpack all the way up this two-mile run. But I thought, what a metaphor for my life at times and yours. You ever feel like giving up? I wanted to give up. And I started doing business with reality and realized, you know what? The only way to go up that hill is to go up that hill. I left my wallet at home so I can't bribe a snowmobiler. That's not an option. So the only way to do this is to do it. And so much of life is like that too. Some of you are in incredibly hardworking situations right now. Your work environment is awful and you wish you could get out, but you can't. Instead, you have to get up each day and go do a job with people who are difficult or go do a job with something you don't really like to do, but it's what you need to do. And some of you have some really strained relationships with family for whatever the reason, and it's hard. And some of you who are in marriages that are incredibly difficult, they're hurting. And there are days you don't want to keep going, quite honestly. And there are some of you who are facing financial difficulties and it is overwhelming. Or it's tax season, in case we all haven't heard, right? And you don't know how you're going to pay your taxes. And many of you are struggling because inflation is inflation and you just, you don't know at times how you're going to be able to pay the bills that you need to pay. And some of you are up against health struggles that every day there it is waiting for you or every night and you just have to deal with it and you're tired and you wish you didn't. And we could go on and on and on. Kids or grandkids who have walked away from the Lord and you pray for them faithfully and there's no movement. In fact, they just seem to get further and further away. I mean, what, what do you do? A life of lasting impact, a common denominator that runs through that and that runs through Nehemiah is perseverance. Nehemiah faced resistance from his own people, resistance from enemies who mocked him and ridiculed him and threatened him and criticized him and slandered him. At times, that wall was overwhelming. It was an overwhelming endeavor for them to try to rebuild it. And of course, there was fear along the way and, and frustrations and discouragements but they persevered. And they built that wall in 52 days, the wall that had been in rubble for over 100 years because they did it as a community. But I bet Nehemiah and the people, when we know they did, felt like giving up at times. So how does Nehemiah end? You know, in our series, we, we got right up towards the end but we didn't do the final chapter, and we're going to do a flyby of it as we wrap up our time in God's Word here. So how does the story end? Well, Nehemiah leaves, as we're about to read. He's been the governor there for 12 years. The king evidently resummons him back to um, Babylon, 
So he goes back. We don't know how long he's gone, but we do know that he comes back, and, and this is what he finds. But while all this was going on, and we'll find out what that was in just a second, but while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. Now, remember, those of you who were with us in the series, and if you weren't, that's okay, we'll catch up. But Tobiah, right out of the gate, was one of the most vocal, the most critical enemies that Nehemiah faced. And he was sophisticated, and he was crafty, and he was a thorn in Nehemiah's side. He opposes him all throughout the book of Nehemiah. In fact, his son had married one of the daughters of the Jewish nobility, so now he was connected to the Jewish community. And many of the Jewish nobility, he had their ear, and he was constantly trying to incite them against Nehemiah. He wrote letters to Nehemiah directly to, to, to intimidate him. He had these nobles writing letters to Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah tells us extolling how wonderful Tobiah was and ingratiating him to Nehemiah. I mean, this guy was awful. So Nehemiah leaves, he comes back, and not only is this guy within the walls of Jerusalem, he's within the walls of the very temple itself. And it's the high priest who gave him a room there. I mean, it's, it's astounding. It's, it's unbelievable. And it gets worse. As we read on, it says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service to the temple had gone back to their own fields. Why? Because they weren't getting paid. They lived off the offerings of the temple. And because enough people weren't bringing offerings, pretty much no one was, they had to find a way to feed themselves, so they literally went back to tilling their own fields. And Nehemiah's like, you're neglecting the house of God? Seriously? And then this happened. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Well, what's the big deal here? Is, is God against different marriages? of different ethnicities. And no, that's not the point here. The point is, and Nehemiah will actually go on, and we don't have time to read through that part of the passage. He will point out that in Israel's history, Solomon, with his many foreign wives, who did exactly what God told him not to do, married all these foreign women from other cultures, and they were paganistic cultures, and they led him to sin against God and to walk away from God. And the problem here is, because of these marriages, now the kids are growing up not knowing Hebrew. So how are they supposed to understand the law when it's read? How are they supposed to understand how to connect to God and be in right relationship with God if they don't speak the language? They're doing exactly what God told them not to do. And in fact, earlier in Nehemiah, I think it's in Nehemiah 10, the people swear they will not intermarry with the surrounding peoples for that very reason. They don't want to be led astray away from God. And what are they doing? They're intermarrying. It's, it's crazy. And it gets worse. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing grain and loading it on the donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all the other kinds of loads. They're disobeying God. They're not resting on the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath. One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Samballot the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. So again, Samballot was one of the enemies of the people 
And yet we have this going on. And again, the high priest is, is sanctioning this, the one who's supposed to spiritually lead the people. And so this is how the book ends. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign, assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first, first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. The end. That can't be the end. That's the end. Where is the real end? No, really, that's the real end. Does that sound like a sustained revival that happened among the people? No. Does that sound like the people were walking in right relationship with God and one another? No. Does that sound like lasting reform and change? No. Does that sound like a happy ending? No. No, no, no. How completely lacking and uninspiring and quite frankly disappointing. Doesn't that feel incomplete? And the answer is yes, it does. Because there's more to come. There is a lasting change that will come that God promised even before the exile. And it's promised over and over again. The days are coming, declares the Lord in Jeremiah, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. There's this promise of a new heart that is coming, a lasting change, a lasting revival that leads to lasting redemption and right relationship with God and other people. When the Messiah would come, when the divine rescue mission would be fully carried out and, and he would live the example of a godly life and then he would die on a cross and then be resurrected to life three days later, later and rise from the dead. And who was that? That was Jesus. As he said in Mark chapter 1, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. A life of lasting impact really begins with a new heart. And you only get a new heart through receiving Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior. Empty religion says you need to change from the outside in. Do this, don't do that, and that'll make you right with God. The Bible teaches that you change from the inside out by responding to what God has done for me and you. God's acceptance of me and you is not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on what you do with Jesus Christ, how you respond to what he has done for you. Not about what you do. It's about what he's done for you and how you respond to that. But once you enter into that relationship with God, once you have that new heart, then he does expect you to trust and obey him. And yes, his approval, his blessing is absolutely contingent on you trusting and obeying him. And communion reminds us of all of these realities. It's one of the many reasons why we celebrate it together. So I'm going to invite our worship team to come.
And I'm going to invite our communion servers to come, and we're going to prepare these elements for you. And we are going to remind ourselves that a life of lasting impact is ours to have because of what Jesus has done for us. Prayer, purpose, community, perseverance, and a new heart are ours to have. By knowing him, by receiving him into our lives as our Lord and Savior, and then by trusting and obeying him as he leads us through his spirit. So this is what we'd like to encourage you to do, to come forward and receive these elements, hold on to them and take them back to your seats, and then we will celebrate communion together. But let's remember what this God, this amazing God, has done for each one of us. For those of you watching or listening, uh, this is a good time for you to also gather these elements to take communion with whoever you're with and wherever you're at. And for those of us here in the room, we're going to do something a little different this morning, purposely and by design. Would you please stand up with me? As a symbol of our unity as a church family and in recognition of the reality that we seek God and discover God together, we're going to invite you to take communion with those right around you. So you are given permission and blessing to move around. We know you're in rows, and that's okay. If you need to move around, do so. Please look around and be inclusive. Include the folks around you. doesn't matter what size group you have. But what we're going to do is put Matthew 26 right up here on the screen. And this details communion of what Jesus instituted and exampled and then asked us to do together. So someone in your group, doesn't matter who, go ahead and read this passage and pray and then take these elements to, together to remember what he's done for each one of us. So go ahead and do that now. Well, I hope that was rich for you. It certainly was rich, rich and good for me. And something else that we do as a church family when we gather together is um, on these communion Sundays, we have this good tradition of taking a second offering together. And these resources go to what we call our fellowship fund. And our fellowship fund goes exclusively to helping folks who find themselves in a difficult place, not just folks in our church family, but folks in the community as well. These resources pay utility bills, um, pay for water that's been shut off, pay rent, pay medical bills, repair cars. I mean, you name it. These resources in the name of Jesus Christ make a difference in people's lives. So just as we did previously, I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. I want to thank God once again for what he's done for each one of us and for the impact of, of these resources as well. So Lord, I thank you that I get to be part of such a generous church family. And they are generous because you are generous towards us. Everything we have comes from you. And so once again, as an acknowledgement of that reality and a celebration of that reality, we choose to give back and to pool these resources once again so that people can know you and hear about you and experience your love through your people here. So God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, you can receive that offering. So how do you live a life of lasting impact? How do you leave a godly legacy? How do you finish well? All those questions are answered by knowing God. Jesus, when he was praying for us, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, said, Now this 
is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. A life of lasting impact begins and ends with knowing God. I hope that you do. And if you don't, or if you're not sure, would you please talk to one of us? Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any one of us wearing one of these. We have prayer teams up front. On the morning we talk about prayer, how can we not have prayer teams up front, right? Please, if there's anything we can pray for you about, please tell us. And let me pray his blessing over each one of you. God, I thank you for this church family. I thank you that together we make you known. I thank you that you are faithful to us, that you always keep your promises, that you meet us in the daily rhythms of our lives. You want us to talk to you and to listen to you. You give us the power to persevere even when it doesn't feel like we can. And you give our lives purpose and hope and direction. Thank you, Lord. We love you. And we pray that as we go from here, you'll give us opportunity to love other people the way you have first loved us to tell someone about the great God that you are. And thank you that we don't go alone. You go with us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So let's go live for him. Thank you for joining us for sermon audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.